All right. Good morning and welcome to Seven Hills Fellowship. Thank you for being here this morning. And uh, let me just, again, let me offer a quick uh, happy Mother's Day to people, acknowledging that Mother's Day is really, really hard. It's one of those interesting holidays when, you know, some people can be very thankful for what they've, you know, experienced with children, but it also brings up a lot of pain for other people. And so let me just acknowledge that today um, and also acknowledge that whether, you know, your experience as a mother has been this wonderful thing or if your experience of being a mother has been a painful thing or maybe you're not a mother at all and you've longed to be, that uh, there really is a sense in which God is a God of restoration and God is a God of redemption. And so there is still hope to be found. And so I pray that you'll come today and you'll actually receive uh, and you'll experience that hope through Jesus. Um, Because Mother's Day is here today, I figured it's great to go ahead and preach on, uh, continue our series on the book of Joshua. And uh, I mean, nothing says Mother's Day like Jericho, of course, and uh, that's where we're going to find ourselves today. I should preach on this on Father's Day. It's a battle, you know. But uh, anyway, let me, let me really quickly recap where we've been. So uh, number one, we took a look at Joshua chapter one, and I'm going to read just a couple key verses from the sermons over the last couple of weeks. But in Joshua chapter one, God speaks to Joshua and says, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so Joshua's strength and his courage was to be found not in his military might or his military acumen, but rather his strength and his courage was to be found in the fact that God was with him. The next week, we took a look at the story of Rahab, which is this really amazing story that this woman who is a prostitute actually ends up uh, entering into the genealogy of Jesus, right? It's just absolutely amazing that God said, I want her to be part of the story of redemption and restoration. And we're going to look really quickly at some of Rahab's words where she says, uh, as she's speaking to the spies, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. In other words, she makes a declaration uh, that the God of the Israelites, that Yahweh is the true, the one true God. Last week in Joshua chapter 5, we took a look at this interesting story where Joshua is uh, sort of standing on the plains, um, looking up at the city of Jericho, and he has stood there most likely 40 years prior when he was one of the 12 spies that went into the country. And at that point in time, 10 of the 12 spies came back and basically reported back to Moses and said, hey, we don't think we can do it. This is a bad idea. And Joshua and Caleb, on the other hand, said, no, I think we can. And as a result of the people of Israel, their disobedience and their doubt and their faithlessness, they didn't enter into the promised land. And so here Joshua is 40 years later as what is most likely an 80-year-old man standing there looking at the city of Jericho. And when he's looking, he sees this, uh, this person. I'm going to read the verse. It says this, when Joshua was by Jericho, this is the time that he's an 80-year-old man, he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he, that is, this man with sword drawn, says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Again, a reminder that God is with him. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at uh, the story of the fall of Jericho. But before we jump into that, let me take a moment and uh, let me invite you to pray with me. Father, we thank you so much um, for your word. We do thank you that your word is timeless We thank you that your word reveals to us uh, truths about who you are and about who we are and about how it is that we should respond to you. But most of all, Father, every bit of your word from Genesis all the way to Revelation points us to your son, Jesus. 
And so, Father, it is today, um, for the sake of Jesus' honor and for the sake of his name, that we come and pray to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, uh, you can raise your hand if you want to. Um, how many of you guys will, will watch a movie more than once? Anybody raise a hand, right? Uh, how many of you guys will watch a TV show or a TV series more than once? Anybody? Right? How many of you will read a book more than once? Okay. How many of you will watch a sporting event more than once? Okay, a little bit less, except for my sports nerds up here. Anyway, so <clears throat> this is why I asked that question. I'll, I'll watch a movie more than once. I'll read a book more than once. I'll do all this stuff. Um, sporting events, like, you know, if the game's over and I know who won, typically I won't watch it again, right? Because, like, all the drama is gone. And what's interesting is every now and then, however, ESPN will show a recap of this fight called the Rumble in the Jungle that happened in 1974, right? Some of you are not old enough to know what I'm talking about. Some of you weren't born in 1974. So uh, the fight, the Rumble in the, in the Jungle that happened in Zaire, um, was between Muhammad Ali, who was um, at that time sort of the reigning world champion. Everybody knew that he was the best boxer, but he was beginning to age. And then there was this up-and-coming fighter named George Foreman. And uh, so they met in Zaire for this huge fight. Now, here's what made so, this fight such a dramatic fight. It made it such a dramatic fight because Ali was aging, uh, and at the same time, George Foreman was just sort of coming to prominence. And George Foreman was this huge, muscular guy, not unlike myself, and uh, he terrified everybody. Again, I don't want to brag or anything, but anyway. And what's interesting is that George Foreman was known for knocking people out, right? He wasn't known for outboxing them or having quick feet or quick hands. He was known for knocking people out. And what's interesting is in his previous two fights, he had knocked out two of the people, Joe Frazier um, and Ken Norton, both of them who had beaten Ali. And so this was this really amazing fight. Now, back to the, the point of me watching this fight. Um, I have watched this fight now, or bits and pieces of it, probably five or six times. I always know who wins the fight. And I always watch the fight and wish it didn't end the way that it did, right? Because I'm a huge George Foreman fan. I think he's awesome. He's just really funny and interesting guy. But to just give it away, he loses the fight. And what's interesting is, again, going into the fight, everybody thought, hey, you know, George Foreman's on the rise. Ali's sort of, you know, deteriorating. He's dwindling. There's, maybe this is the chance where Ali loses. And what's interesting is before the fight, Ali went ahead and kind of told the world what he was going to do. There's this interesting interview with him and uh, Howard Cosell, if you guys remember Howard Cosell. And in that interview, Ali basically says, he says, I'm going to employ this tactic called the rope-a-dope, right? So maybe some of you guys have heard this, uh, this tactic called the rope-a-dope. But essentially what it was, was that Ali said, I'm going to basically let uh, George Foreman punch himself out. I'm going to lean against the ropes, and I'm going to get into a defensive position, and I'm going to let him hit me and hit me and hit me and swing and swing and swing until he's exhausted. Well, to us, that sounds like a perfectly good uh, tactical option because I've watched the fight five or six times, and I know that Ali ends up winning, right? But before the fight, it sounded crazy, agreed? Like, I'm just going to let this giant man who is massively strong and knocked out all these people, I'm just going to let him punch on me? That does not sound like a good plan, right? That's not a good strategy. And yet, we know that Ali actually won the fight. Now, here in today's story, Joshua chapter 6, the story of Jericho, we have a similar strategy that sounds, frankly, a little crazy. Yeah, we're going to jump into it really quickly here, and we'll see what the outcome was for the children of Israel. So follow along with me, if you will, Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 through 27. Now, the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Now, listen to this. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I've delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. 
Now, let me just call time out really quickly here, not to be rude, not to be disrespectful, but it's interesting that as the Israelites are standing there looking at this large walled city that God would say, look, mission accomplished, right? The walls of this city, Jericho, were 14 feet thick, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty huge, it's pretty thick. At 11 feet, the walls began a slope of a 35-degree angle to a height of around 30 feet. And so this walled city probably looked virtually impregnable, impregnable to the Israelites. In other words, they probably looked at it and thought, how are we going to do this, right? How in the world are we going to take this city? Joshua may have been thinking that himself. He may have been scratching his head, looking at those walls and thinking, how's this going to go? And it's at that moment that God says to Joshua, see, I've delivered Jericho into your hands. Mission accomplished. Kind of ironic. Verse 3. Here's what God tells Joshua. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in the front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. And so God has already proclaimed to Joshua that the battle is already won, right? You're good. And so you can imagine that Joshua is waiting for further instructions. You know, okay, well, what's the plan, God? And this is what God gives him. He says, priests, the ark, trumpets, and lots of marching, right? That's, that's God's plan. Joshua may very well have been surprised at the absence of anything resembling a military angle to what God told him, right? He may have been like, okay, what's, what else? He may have been tempted even to offer God a suggestion for another battle plan, but instead what we read in verse 6 is that Joshua does this. It says in verse 6, so Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. No questions that are recorded, no doubts. Joshua just trusts God and obeys, right? Maybe that's what happens when someone has stood in the presence of the Lord, right? Maybe that's what happens. Maybe they just learn to go, all right, God, whatever you say. Right? And we see Joshua doing that right here. Now notice very quickly, too, the presence of the ark uh, in, this, uh, in this, these instructions. In the first 13 verses, we actually read about the ark nine different times. And so the ark is mentioned over and over and over again. And what's clearly being pointed out here is that the central character in this story of the battle of Jericho, it's not Joshua, it's not Rahab, it's not the spies. The central character in this story is God right? He's the one who will be the hero. Um, the battle belongs to the Lord, ultimately. That's a quote from a Petra song. You're welcome. Verse 8. Yeah, I'm going to throw like every, every sermon for the next year. Anyway, verse 8. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark, All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once, then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. So the priests and the armed guards march. The ark goes around and around, the trumpets are blown, day one is in the books. Verse 12, Joshua got up early the next day. 
and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. So for six days, the priests, the guards, and the ark marched around the city. By day six, the people living in Jericho, honestly, they may have lost a little bit of focus, right? They may have just sort of looked at all the people out there and thought, those people are nuts. They're crazy, right? Uh, They're marching around the city again. But on this day, day seven, instead of just marching around Jericho once, the children of Israel marched around, marched around it a second time, and a third time, and a fourth time. And you can imagine at some point in this march that the people of Jericho started to pay a little more attention, right? Maybe the tension inside the city began to rise because something different was happening on this seventh day. Verse 16, the seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Very explicit instructions. Verse 20, when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. So all this time, the Israelites had marched in relative silence. The only noise had been their footsteps and the trumpets. But today was different. After the seventh trip, the trumpets blew. The people shouted and the walls fell. There wasn't a single breach, like one single hole in the wall, as if the gates had been torn down or a tunnel had been dug under the, the, uh, the wall. There wasn't a single point of entry like from a siege ramp. Instead, the wall collapsed everywhere, all the way around. The soldiers of Jericho were completely exposed. Def- they were left completely defenseless. And the Israelite army flooded in and took the city. Verse 21, they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel." So once the walls had fallen, Joshua honored the word of the spies to Rahab, and the two spies entered Jericho, found Rahab and her family, and brought them safely out of the city. There's another sermon right there, actually, that we're not going to be able to get into today. But it's interesting how the faith of one person ultimately ended up uh, working for the salvation of many more. Verse 24, then they burned the whole city and everything in it. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel... Uh, You can go to Jericho, it's outside of Jerusalem, and you can enter in, it's in Palestinian-controlled territory. But it's interesting because the archaeologists that are on the site there can actually show you down about 15 feet where they dig down, uh, that in the sort of the rubble of the old walls, there's a layer that's about an inch and a half thick 
of a black ring that goes around sort of the tell there, uh, which is an archaeological uh, site. But there's a black ring, and the archaeologists will tell you this is where the city was raised and burned roughly 3,500 years ago. So there's archaeological evidence for what happened here. Uh, Continuing on in verse 24. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. That's the day of this writing. Verse 26. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. Right? Interesting story. Again, this is one of the ones you maybe you read um, or had taught to you when you were in vacation Bible school as a kid. It may be in your picture Bible. There's a lot here, but the question is, what do we take away from this story of uh, the fall of Jericho. And we've got to make one decision about what we talk about, and so here's what I'm going to talk about today. Basically, the thesis is this, that often God's plans don't make sense to us, but our faith and obedience ultimately lead to our flourishing. So often God's plans don't make sense to us, but our faith and obedience ultimately lead to our own flourishing. Let's take a look at the fact that often God's plans do not make sense to us. Look again at verses 3 through 5. Again, There are all sorts of instructions that would have made sense here, but this is what God tells Joshua. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. Now, there are some of us in this room, maybe many of us in this room, who we've heard this story so many times that we're just not really surprised by the details of this story anymore, right? Military leaders in the ancient Near East, so 3,500 years ago, they knew that there were several ways to take a walled city. Like these are the normal ways you take a walled city. You could build a siege ramp like the Romans did when the Jews took Masada. Uh, The Romans took about three and a half years and they literally piled up rocks and stone and rubble until they reached the top of Masada, and then they attacked. That's one way to take a walled city. Or you can make siege towers. These are sort of wooden structures like ladders that you put up against the walls and then you invade inside the city. They didn't do that. Or you could tunnel under the walls. They didn't do that. Or you could simply try to encamp around the outside of the city and starve them out or wait till they ran out of water, right? So these are all ways in which they could have done something that would have made sense. These are all sort of appropriate military tactics for taking the city of Jericho, but that's not what God tells them to do. In fact, what was not a commonly practiced siege tactic was marching around the walls for seven days, right? Not in the the military tactical books anywhere. Another piece of the plan that wouldn't have made much sense was taking all the livestock, the gold, the silver, the bronze, and iron, and dedicating it to the Lord instead of actually keeping it all for themselves. Another piece of God's plan that may not have made much sense would have been to pardon a Canaanite prostitute and her entire family, right? Like, again, not in the books. None of that makes much sense to our human sensibilities. The Babylonians and the Assyrians wouldn't have done things that way. So often, however, God's plans just don't really make that much sense to us. It's just true. I mean, if you think about it, think about your own life. Think about how often God has done things in your own life 
that have ultimately led to something wonderful and good, but that have been horribly painful, and they just don't make any sense to us. Over and over again, we see this in Scripture, right? We see Sarah, who gives birth to Isaac when she's 90 years old, right? She experiences, you know, 70, 75 years of being barren, right, of not having children. And yet God answers her prayer when she's a 90-year-old woman. God decides to bless Jacob, who is the guy that really struggles with deception and lying, right? Uh, Not only that, but God decided to save Israel through the misadventures of Joseph, you know, being thrown into a pit and sold into slavery and working in Potiphar's house and being falsely accused and being thrown into jail in Egypt and then finally coming to be second in, in power over over Egypt. Like, that's just, again, that doesn't make any sense. The, everything up to that point just doesn't make sense to us. God didn't choose any of David's kingly-looking brothers. They were strong and handsome and looked tough, but instead God chose this small shepherd boy to be the king over Israel. Again and again, God does these things that just don't make sense to us. Perhaps there is nowhere where this is more clearly seen than in Jesus. The Jews had read the scriptures and they knew that a promised Messiah was coming, they expected him. They really expected him to come. What they didn't expect, however, was for the Messiah not to come in power, but instead to come in weakness, right? That's, that wasn't their plan. They expected him to conquer and to punish their enemies, not to offer them forgiveness, and then ask them to do the same. That didn't make any sense to them, right? They just really wrestled with all of that. That's why they ultimately rejected Jesus. And frankly, God's plans still don't make sense to us, but we are faced with a choice, honestly. Just like Joshua was faced with a choice, just like Sarah was faced with a choice, just like the disciples were faced with a choice, and honestly, just like the Pharisees were faced with a choice. Will we trust in God's plans, or will we decide for ourselves what is true, what is right, and what is good? All right? Each of us is faced with that decision because so often what God does, his plans just don't seem to make any sense to us, right? But part of what we see, the second point that we see in this narrative is that it's precisely our faith and our obedience that are required, right? Because ultimately they lead to flourishing, to our flourishing, to the flourishing of others. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that many of the Israelites may have quietly doubted God's plan for overthrowing Jericho. I don't think that's an overstatement at all. It's not unthinkable that the Israelites would have whispered behind Joshua's back that marching around Jericho was foolish and that a more practical and traditional plan of attack would have just made more sense, right? That's, that's not that much of a leap. I mean, people, you just can't help but have opinions, right? We can pretend like we don't, but we really do. And I think that's actually why the Psalms gives us a voice to say, God, what are you doing, right? Why are you letting the wicked prosper? In the end, however, look at how the Israelites responded. Look at how Joshua responded. For seven days, they got up, put on their gear, grabbed their trumpets, loaded up the ark, reported for duty, and marched around the city of Jericho despite whatever doubts they may have had and despite even the jeers of those in the city of Jericho. And on the seventh day, after the seventh march around the city, they obeyed God and they shouted. And when the walls had fallen down, They set apart the treasure instead of taking it for themselves. And it wasn't just the faith and the obedience of Joshua. It wasn't just the faith and obedience of the Israelites. It was also the faith of Rahab as well. We've already read that this woman who is a prostitute was the one who initially trusted in God as her Savior. 
And it would have been logical for her after the spies had left, you know, she could have said, she could have reconsidered and thought, what have I done? Like, this is nuts. She could have taken her family, left the city and gone and headed for the hills to hide out. But instead, she trusted in God and she obeyed. Now, more often than not, here at Seven Hills Fellowship, we don't really talk that much about obedience. We don't really talk that much about duty. Rather, we talk about Jesus and his perfect obedience on our behalf. And the reason for that is actually pretty simple. I believe that it's easy to be obedient, but then to ultimately have that obedience flow out of a heart of fear. If I don't obey God, he'll crush me, right? That's not the kind of obedience that God desires. Or that obedience can flow out of a heart that desires to control God or to manage God or to manage a particular outcome, right? Again, Krista doesn't want me to act honorably to her so that I get a particular outcome from her. She wants me to honor her because I love her. So if that's the case, then we're just using God like a genie in a bottle. If, that's, if those are the reasons we're obeying God, then we're just using him, right? Remember, the older brother in this parable of the prodigal son was incredibly obedient. If, however, instead of obeying God for those reasons, we trust in Jesus' perfect life and his obedient on, obedience on our behalf, then our hearts and our wills are free to obey God out of gratitude for the grace and the mercy that he's shown us. That's why we often talk ultimately about Jesus' obedience on our behalf. And yet, throughout Scripture, faith and obedience clearly go hand in hand over and over and over again. Let me read a few verses that point that out. Psalm 103 says this, But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. In other words, Old Testament obedience is a piece of the fabric of our, of our lives, of our relationship to God. Matthew 28, this is Jesus after he's lived his life with the disciples. He shepherded them, taught them, walked with them for three years. And here's what he says as he's getting ready to ascend up into heaven. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, that's us, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Old Testament obedience, Jesus' obedience. Uh, Further along the New Testament church, Romans chapter 6, listen to what Paul says. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So clearly, faith and obedience always go hand in hand, right? They're part and parcel of the Christian faith. But the question is why? What is it that our faith does? That's the last thing we see in this narrative is what we see is that even though often God's plans don't make any sense to us, and uh, that even in the midst of that, our faith and obedience are required because ultimately they lead us to lives of flourishing. Listen to verse uh, 20 and verse 25. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. What did their obedience and faith gain them? Entrance to the city, victory. Look at verse 25 with Rahab. What did her faith and obedience gain her? But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this very day. Her faith 
and obedience actually led to flourishing for her. Forty years prior to this moment of these, uh, this marching and the trumpets and the shout and the overthrow of Jericho, 40 years prior to this, the Israelites chose not to trust in God, not to have faith in Him. They refused to obey God, and as a result, they wandered in the desert, and they didn't enter into the promised land. That was the curse of their lack of faith and their disobedience. Adam and Eve doubted God. They disbelieved Him. They disobeyed Him, and as a result, they were cast out of the garden, and humans have been looking for Eden. You and me, we've been looking for Eden ever since. Parents know clearly, very clearly, that disobedience leads to burned fingers, to crankiness, and to stomach aches, right? That's the result of disobedience. Soccer coaches know that disobedience leads to missed opportunities and to average or below average performance. CrossFit coaches know that disobedience leads to torn rotator cuffs and lower back issues. Am I right, Jeff? Probably. Music teachers Uh, know that disobedience leads to flat notes and poor performances. On the other hand, obedience to the teacher, to the coach, and ultimately to the master, even when it doesn't really make much sense to us, leads to flourishing, our flourishing, right? That's why Jesus said in John chapter 10, he says this, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. In other words, trusting in Jesus, trusting in God, and obeying him actually leads to a fullness of life, actually leads to human flourishing. It's not unlike when I preached a few years ago on the Ten Commandments, and I basically said over and over and over again, like, we think about the Ten Commandments as this sort of politicized thing where people are fighting to hang it on the wall of their courtroom or the school, and that's not really the point. The point is, is that each of us actually want to live in a world where we don't have to worry about our stuff getting stolen, right? You want to be able to leave your computer on the table in Starbucks and go to the bathroom and come back and have it still be there when you get back, right? You want to be able to leave your house unlocked at night and not worry about somebody coming in and stealing anything, right? You want to be able to have relationships with other people and go into downtown Atlanta and not worry about getting murdered or getting killed, right? You want to be able to have a relationship with your children or your husband and not have to worry about them being dishonest to you. That's actually the world that we want to live in, and you can look at it, and you can say if we lived this way, if we trusted in God, even when it didn't seem to make sense to us, It would actually lead to our flourishing as human beings. That's what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 10. What's interesting about the story of Jericho is that in some respects, the ultimate message of this story is that faith and obedience lead to rest and redemption. That faith and obedience lead to rest and redemption. Rest, because the promised land symbolizes an end to slavery and an end to wandering and being brought home. Right, how many of you long for home, right? that place where you fit, that place where you feel safe, that place where you don't have to say the words anymore, like, I just don't feel like anybody knows. I don't feel like under, anybody understands me. But faith and obedience ultimately lead to a place of emotional, psychological, physiological rest. Right? That's what the promised land ultimately represents and ultimately represents heaven. Rest and redemption. Redemption because Rahab, the prostitute, is saved 
from condemnation, right? Her, her record, which let's face it, was probably not a great record, is erased, right? She's saved from condemnation and she enters into the family of God, right? It's amazing. It's a story of, of rest and redemption because of our faith ultimately in Jesus. As we look around the room this morning, there are tables with bread and wine on my right and your left and bread and grape juice on the left-hand side of the uh, auditorium. But what this meal that we call the Lord's Supper or we call communion, what it, what it represents are those two things. It represents rest, right? You, you can obey, right? Because ultimately your obedience doesn't have to be perfect because Jesus' obedience was perfect on your behalf. And so you can enter to the, and, and walk up to the table of the Lord and you can take this bread and dip it into the wine because ultimately your safety was in Jesus, is in Jesus' perfect obedience on your behalf. And you can rest, right? And you can obey God out of gratitude, not out of fear or not out of trying to manage the situation. But not only that, this meal is a message of redemption, right? That just like Rahab the prostitute, we can look at our record And we can look at the times that we have been dishonest. We can look at the times where we have stolen, whether that's physically taking something that doesn't belong to us or stolen through something through plagiarism, right? There are any number of different ways that we can steal. And ultimately, it's not our record again that matters, but it's Jesus' record that offers us restoration and redemption. And so what I would ask you to do today as you think about this meal and even as you think about the story of Jericho, that you would have faith in Jesus the one who earned our rest, and the one who earned our restoration. And so I would ask that you come before him today, come before God, and that you receive this bread and wine, and that you believe that you can rest knowing that God loves you and has forgiven you and even invited you into his family, and that he welcomes you home, again, not because of your performance, but because of the performance of his son Jesus. I'm going to pray, but before I do so, I'm going to read the words of institution, and then I would like to invite you to come and to take the Lord's Prayer, and, uh, and to receive that rest, and to be reminded of that redemption. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you um, that though very often we have no real idea what you're doing, and very often the plans that you have are just not at all like the plans that we would come up with, Father. I pray that you would enable us to trust in you and to obey you because like Joshua, we've stood in your presence and we know that you're good and that we know that you're God, and that we know that ultimately you desire what is best for us. And so, Father, I pray today that we would even be able to come, and we would be able to take this bread and this wine, and it would be a reminder um, that your plan is all that was required for us to be made right. And so, Father, I pray that we would take this bread, and we would take this wine, and that we would rest in the perfection and the obedience and the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that we would take this bread and that we would take this wine and that we would believe you and trust in you that we have been redeemed, that we have been restored. So Father, let us declare as we take this bread and wine that our hope is in you and in your son, Jesus. 
life, and death, and resurrection on our behalf. We pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.